Hey, uh, welcome here. It's great to be together. As already has been mentioned a couple of times, major focus of the weekend is baptism. And so it's going to be a shorter message introducing a new book. Uh, 35 individuals over the course of the weekend are going to be baptized. So what an amazing celebration that is. And I know many of you are here for that. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, we, we are also starting a new summer series. We just finished off five weeks, Foundations for Flourishing, a topical series. And going to jump in for the next 10 weeks of summer. This will take us right up to... Uh, the long weekend in September, a study and a short book of the book of Colossians. So you want to have your Bibles turned to Colossians. We're going to be in the first 14 verses, uh, just doing the introduction. And actually, as you read these introductory verses, you will see that there probably is not a better text uh, that weaves together the themes of what baptism is all about, uh, because this text basically says the gospel changes your identity. That's what Paul is going to say to these people. The gospel, rightly understood, changes your identity. You move from what you were before to now and we'll get in there. I don't want to preach the message, but it changes your identity. And Paul gives this great prayer of thanksgiving and then a great prayer of anticipation. And I think as we think of the individuals going to be baptized this weekend, there's probably no better way for us to think of them as well, to say we thank God that he, through the gospel he has changed your identity in Jesus Christ. We thank God for what he has done and we anticipate what he will be doing. And so it applies specifically to the 35 who are going to be baptized this weekend and then, of course, to all of us. But uh, we'll get a little bit of a shout out directly uh, to those being baptized. And so uh, we're going to dive in uh, because I am going to try to keep it a little shorter. That's not a promise, but I'm going to try uh, so that we can get to baptism. But we need to do the 30,000 foot view. So anytime you start into a new book, don't want to assume that uh, all of you have the context or the, the, the setting for it. And so it's like flying across Canada at the 30,000 foot view and you look down on the, the beautiful patchwork quilt of the prairies uh, when uh, all the crops are in season, and you just get a lay of the land, if you will. And so the lay of the land, of course, is that this is a New Testament letter. So Old Testament, New Testament, there are 27 books in the New Testament. Twelve of those were written by a man named the Apostle Paul. Uh, some debate, did he write the book of Hebrews? So maybe he wrote 13, but 12 for sure are named his letters, and this is one of them, the letter to the church at Colossae. And this letter is unique in a couple ways. It's unique first and foremost because Paul didn't start this church. He wasn't the planter. In fact, he had never visited Colossae. He had never met these people that he's writing this letter to face to face. He's only heard about them. So that's unique. He's writing to a letter to a group of people that he has never personally met. And then secondly, most of Paul's letters are written to address some specific issue in the church some problem, some theological debate, some argument between people, and he's trying to settle the fights in churches often. But the book of Colossians is very generic. Now, as we get into it, you will see that there are indeed four or five themes that come up. Uh, scholars and commentators say there's these doctrinal issues that come up, but none of them is major. And so we'll come across some of these key themes, but the closest we get is maybe in chapter two when Paul says, don't get taken captive by deceptive words and vain philosophy. So when we get over into chapter two, you're like, oh, that's really relevant to 2023. Deceptive words and vain philosophy. So there's nothing new under the sun. Back in the first century, the church was struggling with false teaching, if you will, and getting dragged aside. So he's clearly warning them about some kind of a false teaching, but he, he doesn't tackle it head on. So I'll just give you a few other books for information's sake. So if you look at the book of Romans, we know that the book of Romans is in the macro story about justification by faith. 
How do we get right with God? It is through faith alone and Christ alone, period. It is not of our good works. It is the works of Jesus. That's what the book of Romans is all about. The book of Philippians is about the joy that we should have. And a lot of you should read the book of Philippians right now. You're like, you look terrible. So go read Philippians. James is all about maturity. And Ephesians is all about the church. So you can grab a book and say, this is what it's about. Colossians isn't that easy in determining what is the key issue that Paul is on about. He doesn't dictate a specific problem, but he does indeed get explicitly clear in its solution. And the solution in this book is get your eyes on Jesus. So this book is about the preeminence of Jesus. Uh, so Carolyn's reading a book recently, and in, uh, in our house, uh, when we're reading, sometimes we'll be like, hey, listen up to this. So we interrupt each other's reading. So she's reading a book, I'm reading, she interrupts me, and she's like, you need to hear this line. It's a great line. The author was saying this, we need to glance at the world, but gaze at Jesus. That quote came to me in the middle of the last five-week series, and you will know that last five-week series was really tough as we're dealing with cultural issues and all the stuff that we were doing a deep dive down into, and I really needed that phrase in the midst of that study. It's fine to study what's going on in the world. We need to be aware of it, but more than gazing at all the stuff going on in the world, we need to gaze at Jesus. Glance at the world, be aware of what's going on, but get your eyes fixed on Jesus. There's no one like him, Colossians will say. He is unique, he is supreme, and so the tagline, you've seen it on the title slides already, is making much of Jesus. That's what the book is about. Some have said, if you want a theme verse, it would be Colossians 1.28. This is what Ezra thinks is the theme verse of this book. Him we proclaim, Jesus. Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is Paul's goal. It is the goal of the church. It is the goal of gospel preaching. And so what Colossians is really going to press into us over these 10 weeks of the summer is the satisfaction and the depth and the riches of a Christ-centered life, or like that hymn that we just sang, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth grow strangely dim. Or to borrow a quote from a, a Tim Keller video I was watching recently, he said these words, we come to believe that he satisfies and surpasses all aspirations of our lives. As we get to know him, as we get our eyes on him, as we understand who Jesus really is, he satisfies and surpasses all other aspirations in our life. So we're going to dig into the first 14 verses. We're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at the anchor that Paul gives to his readers about their new identity, the rejoicing he does in prayer for what God has done, the anticipation in prayer for what God will do. Now, we're not going to take it in that order. We're going to take two and three, and then we're going to come back to number one. So for now, skip verse 1 and 2, and we're going to start at verse 3 to 8. So if you've got your Bibles open, you can follow along those first few verses there. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to you 
your love in the Spirit. Okay, it's just an opening greeting and an opening prayer. So Paul writes this letter to the Church of Colossians, and he's like, I have not stopped giving thanks to God for the work that he has done in your life. So the, the first thing we see is Paul rejoicing in prayer for what God has done in these people's lives. We've heard of your faith, and ever since, we've not stopped praying for you. So let's just press pause. Take a rabbit trail. Get the context clear in our minds. There's a few things worth commenting on. First, Paul is writing this letter from prison. Many of his letters were written from a prison cell. He spent over four years that we know confined to prison and wrote a lot of letters during those days. But this letter, unlike others, he doesn't concentrate on that. He mentions in chapter one his sufferings. When he gets to chapter four, he'll, he'll talk about some of the other prisoners. And then the very last verse in the book, 418, is, and remember my chains. But he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it. And he basically says the two guys carrying this letter, bringing it to you, Tychicus and Onesimus, are going to deliver the letter. Those guys can tell you all about what's going on with me over here. So chapter 4, verse 9, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. And that's all we get about his contact. How's he doing? Are the guards mistreating him? Is he really suffering? Is it hard labor? Is it what's going on in prison? He doesn't even talk about it. Secondly, I already mentioned this, but Paul had only heard of their faith. He wasn't there to see the beginning days of this church. It was a man named Epaphras who had brought the gospel to Colossae. So Epaphras, we read his name, chapter 1, verse 7, and he's mentioned again in chapter 4. And Epaphras has traveled 1,300 miles from Colossae, probably around the upper end of the Aegean Sea, over to Rome to visit with Paul, to tell him about this church, to ask some questions. Now, 1,300 miles, to put that into perspective, if we headed east 1,300 miles, that takes you almost to Winnipeg. Now, why anyone would want to go to Winnipeg, that's a whole other debate that we could talk about, why anyone would make that journey. But Epaphras has made this 1,300-mile journey, and it is not in a car, it is not in a train, a bus, or an airplane. It is largely by foot maybe in a wagon, but largely walking. So it would have been a multiple month journey for him to get from Colossae over to Rome to talk about this. And what he wanted to say to Paul was understand this, understand how the gospel spreads. So Colossae, let's talk about this little town, a little town in the middle of nowhere. It was part of a three-part little town, Laodicea, Herapolis, and Colossae. They were like a triangle. They were about 12 to 15 miles apart. And Colossae, for three to 400 years, was sort of the, the big dog of the three because a major trade route ran north and south and east and west through Colossae. So everybody came through Colossae. But then that highway was rerouted and Laodicea became the leading city. So how many of you heard of Laodicea before? You get to Revelation and the letters to the church. The, the church at Laodicea became a very famous church in the first century. But before that, Colossae was sort of the, the ruling one of these three tri-cities. And, it, and it's sort of like today, and you know how this happens. The Trans-Canada Highway, when it was built, bypassed a bunch of little towns. And those little towns that used to have a ton of traffic going through them shriveled up and died overnight, their economy. Same way in the States when the interstate freeway system was built. So let me ask you this question. I hear that voice. Matt Crocker, get that kid out of here. <laughs> Howard, is that your grandchild? What are, what are you doing as a grandfather to discipline that child? <laughs> That's a joke. He loves me. It's all good. It's awesome. If I cry, will you carry me out too? Anyway, here we go. All right, what are we talking about? 
How many of you have been to Wall Drug in Wall, South Dakota? Anybody in the room? Amazingly. Okay, so this picture, Wall Drug. So we're talking about a little town that gets bypassed by a freeway, right? So this little town of less than a thousand people in the so-called Badlands of South Dakota, and Interstate 90 bypasses them, and there's only one big store in town, Wall Drug, there's 700 people. They know that their town is going to die if they don't do something. So they started putting up billboards along the freeway, 20 miles out, 100 miles out. If you have driven along I-90, you will know that from the time you leave Chicago, almost by the time you get to the Wisconsin border, you are starting to see signs for wall drug, and it will say 300 miles, 200 miles, 150 miles, and then they get closer and closer. These guys put signs everywhere. In fact, the farthest they went was to the London Underground in London, England, and posted it. They got permission to hang a sign in the London Underground 5,160 miles to Wall Drug, South Dakota. <laughs> what is amazing in this little town is that 711 year-round residents, and they have over 2 million visitors every year. You're like, who cares? <laughs> the point is this. Colossae was one of these little backwater towns off the beaten track. It's a church that was part of Paul's church planting network, his church planting movement, but Paul had never been there personally. So the background is Acts 19. Paul is at Ephesus for two and a half years, and at Ephesus he establishes a preacher's college, a training school, a church planting training center where he was, had all these young guys under his tutelage, and these guys went out and preached the gospel in all these small towns. And so Acts 19 verse 10 says this, this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul has an impact from the big city, Ephesus, training leaders from all these communities, and obviously one of them, Epaphras, the church planner of the city, came to learn under Paul, goes back, he plants a church in a house church in a guy's named Philemon's house. So you get Philemon and Onesimus, they're all connected in this story. Okay, fine. The point is this, good news travels. That as the gospel grows and expands, the word gets around. And so I would just remind you, if you wonder sometimes, why do we share stories with you about what God's doing in other places? Why do we remind you about what's happening in Harrison Hot Springs, that a church closed its doors and a new church planner opened a church and over 100 people are coming to a brand new church in that little community? Dawson Creek, Kelowna, Halifax, the Kilbride neighborhood of St. John's, Newfoundland. Like, why do we tell you these stories? Because we rejoice to hear when the gospel is bearing fruit. And I don't know if you've done this lately, but if you would pull out a map or pull it up on your phone or your computer, the map of BC, and look at all these little dots all over the province of these tiny little towns in the middle of nowhere, these little villages, and most of them are, on, are not on the way to anywhere. The only reason that you would go there is if you happen to know somebody who was there. There's no other reason you would visit these little towns. And many of these little towns no longer have a gospel preaching church at all. And our prayer and our concern is how might the Lord use us to help reach some of these communities? Okay, we'll go back to the text. Paul writes to people that he has never met. And he says this in those first few verses that we read, we are rejoicing, we're thanking God for your faith and your love. And, and basically what he says is, I am so thankful 
that you've heard the gospel from our faithful brother Epaphras. He has told us, he's come to Rome and he's told us about your faith and he's told us about the love that you have for one another in your church family, your faith and your love that flow out of the hope of the gospel, the hope of eternity, the hope of heaven, the text says. The gospel, the word of truth that you heard, you received it, you understood it and it has changed you. It has changed your identity and it has changed how you live your life. The message bears fruit wherever it goes. So we read Paul's prayer and we're like, you know what? Thank God that Jesus is building his church. Like he said, like the little mustard seed or like the yeast, it starts small, but it permeates and it grows. And Paul is basically saying in prayer, I am so thankful that you heard and understood the gospel, you embraced the gospel, you believed the gospel. So this weekend, when we hear baptism testimonies in our hearts of hearts, we should be saying, thank God that these individuals, many of these individuals that you will not personally know, but you can say, thank God that you heard the gospel, you understood the gospel, you embraced the gospel, amen? It's what the gospel does. It is bearing fruit in all the world, wherever the gospel goes, wherever the name of Christ is lifted up, God calls people to himself. So Paul's like, what more can I say than thanks be to God? Okay, then he goes on to keep reading. And we hear him anticipating now his prayer changes from what was to what will be. Anticipating in prayer what God will do, those next few verses. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. The summary, we are thankful to God for the good beginning, what he has done, and now we anticipate what he is going to do. We're praying for even more. Lord, just keep pouring it on. And two specifics we see in that prayer. He prays for them that their knowledge would continue to grow. Verse nine, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. In other words, that you would get your roots down deep into God's word, into Christian community, that the fellowship, the love of the brotherhood, and all of those things, that your identity as dearly loved children of God would be rock solid, that you would have deep, deep roots. And then secondly, that that knowledge would not just be head knowledge. It wouldn't just be that you attended a theology class, you jammed your head full of more doctrine and good Bible verses and all that great stuff, but it is knowledge, head knowledge, that is then translated down to our heart and out through our hands and feet. We put it into the practical daily, day in day, day in and day out life. Verse 10, that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You say, well, what does that look like? Glad you asked. Paul gives us four markers. Fruit growth, strength, and joy. Now these themes are gonna come up all the way through the book, so I'm just gonna mention them, and they will come, we'll come back to them again and again. Are these not what every child of God would long for in our heart? God, I would love to be useful to you. I would love to be fruitful. I would love to be part of helping make this world a better place. And specifically, he says, the fruit of good works. So we know clearly that works do not save us, but that works are the fruit of our salvation. So because what God has done for us, we therefore then live for him, we glorify him. And so through the fruit of our good works, 
and, and that we would know Christ more and more, that our knowledge, our understanding would continue to grow, and that we would have strength and patience and endurance because this is a long-haul race. It's a marathon, not a sprint. I like the analogy that uh, the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, that you would run your race with endurance, the race set out before you. Set aside every weight that holds you back. And then it makes this analogy, just like Christ endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him, he endured. And how we in our day need strength and encouragement and endurance. And then if there is one characteristic that we should want to be known for, it is this characteristic, joy-filled, thankful lives. I'm increasingly convinced that the number one testimony and witness that God is going to use in the day and age that we live in is the joy of God's people. That this will cause us to stand out in the midst of the craziness of the world around us, a life filled to overflowing with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And are not these the things that we wish for our kids? For our children and our grandchildren, that they would be fruitful, that they would grow deep in their knowledge of God, that they would be strong, that they would be able to endure the storms of life, and that they would be joyful kids. I mean, how many of you want unjoyful kids? And are these not the very same things that we pray for every person who goes through the waters of baptism? That they would grow in fruit, that they would grow in knowledge, that they would be strengthened, and that they would be filled with joy. And so for those of you getting baptized, we rejoice in what God has done. As we've read your testimonies, those who got the books earlier or got online and read them, as we read them, as we hear them, we say, of course, that's what the gospel does. It bears fruit. It increases. And so every single person who's going to go through the waters of baptism this weekend will say somewhere along that journey, God put somebody into my life who brought me the gospel and brought me to the gospel. Like Epaphras taking the gospel from the training school in Ephesus over to the little town of Colossae and now going to tell Paul about it. Uh, We're reminded this is why we serve. It's why we serve in day camps. It's why we serve in Sunday school. It's why we host community groups in our homes. It's why we sit together around Bible study table groups. It's, It's why we go into our workplaces and our schools with Jesus on our lips so that there'll be more stories of the gospel doing what the gospel always does. But our prayer doesn't stop there because your baptism isn't the end. It's the beginning of the journey. And so we pray like what Paul prayed. Thanks for what God has done, but anticipating what God can and will do. Now, finally, to wrap this thing up, we need to note the reason that Paul could pray with such confidence. So I want to go back to the first verses and the last verses, how he bookend, how he anchors them in their new identity. The gospel changes our identity. So look at how he starts the book. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our father. Verse two, he uses four descriptors. He starts and finishes this paragraph by talking about who they are in Christ. And in verse two, you see four descriptors. Okay, he obviously, he calls them Colossians. To the church at Colossae. So yeah, to all you Abbotsfordians, to all you Missionites, to all you Chilliwackians, or however we say that. To the people who live at Corinth. Okay, great, fine. You live at Colossae. But then he uses these three important phrases. He calls them saints, holy ones. 
Not sinners, not immoral people, not people who've been washed and cleaned. He calls them holy saints. In the eyes of God, God sees you as a saint. They are faithful brothers. And the word brothers is a generic. It means brothers and sisters. We're family. And so when he talks about the love that they have between one another, this connection that we have as family, and then that key phrase, in Christ. Paul loves this phrase. He uses it over 80 times in his books, in various forms, in Christ. We'll come back to that. Now go to the end of that paragraph, the last two verses. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And what we see most clearly here is the before and the after. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's where we lived. The captives have now been set free. And he uses the word literally rescued. But not just rescued us out of the domain of darkness and then dropped us into like a refugee camp or a resettlement station that we get stuck in, a no man's land somewhere in between. But literally, he says, you have been given a new identity. You've been given new identification papers. You're citizens of a new country. You're out of the kingdom of darkness and you're into the kingdom of the son he loves. You carry a new passport. And most importantly, you have been redeemed and forgiven. And that phrase is important because it's a financial term. It's an economic term. It it in essence is saying you were in debt up to your net, up to your neck. You could not repay your debt and you needed somebody to pay your debts. And the debt here is not a financial debt, but the debt of sin. And you need to know that the creditors are not going to be sending you letters anymore. The collection agency is not going to be knocking on your door because your debts have been fully paid in Christ Jesus. Now, we'll get back to this in chapter 2, and it's one of my favorite chunks in this whole book. But at the end, uh, the middle of chapter 2, rather, he says this, And you who were dead, God made alive, having forgiven all our trespasses. And then he goes on to say this, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what chapter 114 and 214 tell us this is you have been bought back. The legal demands of all your debts, the debt of your sin, if they were all written out on a piece of paper, every detail, and it would be many pieces of paper. In fact, probably for some of us, it's an encyclopedia. This is the story of your life and that Jesus took it with him. He walks to Calvary. He nails it to the cross and he writes across it in blood red ink paid in full. This guy no longer is in debt to sin. This young woman, this young man, they are free from the debt of sin because I, Jesus, have paid that debt on their behalf. I took their place. And so the reason that Paul can rejoice over these people These people that he has never met face to face and the reason that he can be so assured in prayer of what the gospel is going to do because he knows about their identity in Christ and that is what he is praying into because Paul knows that the gospel changes our identity and that is the big idea of this text. The gospel changes your identity. It's interesting that Paul does not pray about their goodness but he prays about the goodness of Christ He's not praying into their faithfulness, but the faithfulness of Christ. And he reminds them, in essence, it doesn't matter who you think you are, where you've been, what you've done. In Christ, you are saints. 
You've got a new identity. You've been set apart. In Christ, we're brothers and sisters. You don't even know each other in the room, but in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ, you have a whole family around you now that you're going to walk this journey of life with. We're children of the high king, immediately connected. And in Christ, you're rescued, redeemed, and delivered from the power of darkness. There is no more shame You are not identified by your past. You are identified by the finished work of Christ alone. The gospel has the power to change our standing before God, our citizenship, and literally our identity. And so Epaphras shows up in Rome. 1,300-mile trip. Paul, do you remember me? I was in your class at Ephesus. You were the prof. I was one of the students. Do you remember me? I went out from that class and I went back to my hometown, Colossae, and I need to tell you what the gospel has done in my hometown. The gospel's doing what it always does. It changes people's lives. And so this weekend, in a tangible, graphic way, we get to witness the gospel at work. Men and women who have heard the gospel, the word of truth. Men and women who've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. Men and women who no longer are aliens and strangers, but now they have new citizenship papers. Men and women who have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and have been raised to new life. So that's what water baptism is all about. It tells a story. It tells the story of the gospel, and it also tells the story of an individual life. It tells the story of how our world was broken by sin and how each one of us were broken by sin and rebellion. And the only way to be reconciled to the Father was if that debt that we just talked about was paid, but only a sinless sacrifice would do. And none of us are without sin. So Jesus took it upon himself. He willingly stepped in our place. He paid the debt he didn't owe. He died a death he didn't deserve to die. The innocent one for the guilty ones. And then he turns to us and he says, I've done this for you. Everything that needs to be done for you to be right with the Father has been done. The way is now open through my life, through my sacrifice and my death. And you're like, well, how do I get in on that? And here's the key point. You've got to die as well. You've got to enter into Christ's death. You've got to lay your life down now and pick up the new life that you have in Jesus. The way you get to the Father is through the cross. If your life is hidden in Christ, if your life is hidden in mine, he says, then you get what I did for you. If you die with me in my death, you will also be raised with me in a new life. The old man is dead, buried, and gone, and a new life has come. And that's why water baptism is such a powerful picture. We hold these people under until the bubbles quit and then pull them back up to new life. It's an outward display of what happens in our union with Christ. And so if you're with us this weekend and you're not, you'd say, I don't think I'm a Christian. I wouldn't call myself that yet. I'm so glad you're here. And I've been praying this week that as you hear these testimonies, as you hear the words of the gospel in their stories, that your heart will be stirred. And I know that there are others in the room that you are Christians, but you haven't yet made this public declaration. You haven't been publicly baptized. You haven't declared your faith before the people of God. And I just encourage you, we do these things four or five times a year. The next class will probably be late summer, early September. There'll be another baptism class. September will baptize. Get in on that. But for those of you being baptized... Let me bless you with these thoughts from Paul to the Colossians that ever since we heard about your faith, we have not stopped thanking God for what he has done and we won't stop praying for what he will do. 
And let me give you these words, and may they be true for each one of us today, but specifically for those being baptized. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving.